must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The signs of the Apostle John and his gospel, these signs that he wrote of Jesus, these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that by believing you have life through his name. For by grace are we saved through, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, they prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Therefore, my beloved, just as you've obeyed in my presence, now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one working you both to will and to work for his pleasure. And many other things we could say about God's grace working in our salvation and then working in us because of our salvation, working through us in our spiritual lives. We've assembled for fellowship with God and his word. We're in Isaiah chapter 26 tonight, and we need the spirit of God to be our teacher now and always, not only to bring it to our hearts tonight in understanding, but to bring it to our remembrance through our days and weeks. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer because proper adjustment to the Spirit of God is not grieving Him through personal sin or quenching Him, which is to forestall His work of filling and edifying us, but it's to walk with Him in the truth and the light as God Himself is in the light. The darkness of personal sin is forgiven and cleansed in the believer when we confess, as 1 John 1.9 clearly tells us, among other places. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, every assembly of this group is a celebration of your so great salvation, the riches of your grace, which you've poured out, you've lavished on us so generously in the beloved in Christ. And we have you because we have him according to your eternal plan, and you've saved us. You've saved us through your son, and we bless you and praise you for that. Thank you for the wisdom to say so, for the breath, and all that goes into our capacity to praise your name. And tonight, Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself and conforming our characters more to yours, more to the thinking of your son and the power of your spirit as we pay attention to what you've said through the prophet Isaiah, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We are taking up the... Little Apocalypse, um, one little paragraph after the middle, or two paragraphs after the middle in verses 7 through 21 of chapter 26. And here's the complicated picture of four chapters of Isaiah that are poetic. And, if, and we read half of it last time. And um, if you remember, I mean, if you try it, read chapters 24 through 27 in one sitting and recognize that a couple of interesting things are going to happen, depending on what Bible translation you're reading. I wouldn't recommend the NIV or the message, but I would find it in the New King James or King James or New American Standard. I try to find a formal equivalent translation, and a lot of interesting things are going to happen. One is that you're going to be refreshed consistently with several themes that keep getting picked back up, like God's wrath against the wicked and God's blessing of the humble and the righteous. Another thing that's going to happen for you is you're going to say, I'm really not sure what to make of all of that one piece. I mean, the pastor said that's one literary unit, but it's just, what do you do with this? And, and, and then that, you're, you're welcome to American English uh, Bible reading because it's poetry in Hebrew. Poetry is art, and art 
needs to be studied. It needs to be looked at. It needs to be appreciated for its form because the form is the medium that brings about the function of understanding. And God elected to do it this way. He likes to tell us stories, and there's an art in storytelling, but that's not this. This is an artistic portrayal through poetry, through a series of poetic units that depict what God is going to do to ultimately establish righteousness within his creation and segregate wickedness from it, the, the, the end state that we're all anticipating and longing for. A, a passage that goes nicely with that would be, for example, Second Peter 3, which tells us how to live now in light of God's promises. Where? Know that, first of all, in the last days, in Second Peter 3.3, 3, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. The unbelief always tries to pass off uniformitarianism. What I see happening normally is what must always have been happening normally. I don't see any miracles. Well, you don't have the perspective to see that the sunrise is a miracle, that gravity is a miracle, that the laws of nature have a lawgiver that makes them so. And, uh, but that's a, that's a biblical perspective that we're bringing to God's creation. For when they maintain this uniformitarianism, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word... The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The ultimate challenge of well, I don't see it happening. It's taken too long. And where's the promise of his coming is met with the ultimate answer of why things seem to be taking so long from our perspective. God wanted you. He wanted you to come to Christ. And that person that just now, just now, within the 100 mile radius of where we stand right now, someone probably just trusted in Christ. Well, I mean, can we say that in Connecticut? I mean, very likely, just now, someone became a Christian. Some little kid, some little three-year-old with a Bible-believing Christian mother just said, do you understand what I'm saying about Jesus loving you and dying for your sins? And like me, that little three-year-old said, yes. And then she said, did you really understand? And he said, yes, I understood. Do, do you really understand that Jesus died for your sins? And he says, yes. And maybe that was the moment where he really did kind of understand you had to be provoked a little bit to think because we're little boys. Anyway, somewhere, someone is believing in Christ. It's magnificent to think about. And yeah, it's worth waiting. I want righteousness to reign. I want the wickedness to cease. And I do. Think about the worst wickedness you can imagine. It's going on in a hundred square mile radius of, uh, of us too. That's going on too. The worst thing. The, hor- the, the, the trouble that adults cause children that Troubles them for life. That's happening in, in five square miles. It's happening in our environs. And we want that to stop. We want God to show up and fix it. And he will. 
And that's what we're studying when we study eschatology. We're the waiting people of God in Isaiah 26, 7 through 21. And by way of review, in verse 1 of 26, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And what day? The day that we're all anticipating. A city of strength for us. We have been given a strong city. Salvation, he'll establish walls and a rampart. Who's going to build the strong city? Jesus Christ, God, who comes to rule. Open the gates and let it enter. What? A righteous nation, one who guards faithfulness. You will preserve a firm intention and perfect peace, for he has reposed his trust in you. Asterisk, that's my paraphrase of a very difficult verse to translate. But you've got your firm intention, but God establishes it and stabilizes it because you keep trusting in him. You have what you want, but more importantly, your trust is in God. And that's a better rendering, really, than what your English Bible might translate um, about uh, that will keep in perfect peace the mind that stayed on thee. This is better. Because it's, it's saying you have responsibilities, but the ultimate responsibility is to trust in God. And notice it goes to second person, you. It's, it's personal. In verse 4, trust in Yahweh forever, for in Yah, Yahweh we have an everlasting rock. For he has thrown down the dwellers on high, the assembly, the inaccessibly high city. He's laid it low, he's laid it down to the ground, he's thrown it down to the dust. The foot will trample it, even the feet of the poor, the footsteps of the helpless. So this opens up the song of the strong city. And then that takes us into verses 7 through 21, the waiting people. That is our passage tonight. In New American Standard, it says, the way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we've waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. I want you to notice as we read through one of the great themes in this portion of the little apocalypse is the I thou. I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking in the second person to someone. It reads like the Psalms. It's a prayer to God, and it's, a, it's some of the most wonderful devotional um, poetry in Isaiah. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. Let's ask this question. Can you say that to God and pass the lie detector test? Does the, does the buzzer go off when you say, you, O oh God, are the desire of my soul? And we say, I want to be that way. The moment that you recognize that it's not that way and you realize what Isaiah says here is what I want to be true for me, it's a magnificent moment that we call repentance. You can actually change your mind and make the adjustment. And the repentance, I'm not talking about coming to become a believer. I mean, in that moment, we're making a little adjustment. I was looking the other way and now I'm looking at him. And yeah, that is my desire because I do believe in the things of God and in his eternal purpose. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. And now we got a major pivot for those earth dwellers for whom the tribulation is reserved. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness. He does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Notice that there is some poetic cause and effect here. There's a blindness, there's an ignorance, there's a willful ignorance, and there is a judgment. Lord, you will establish peace for us. And that great theme we keep talking about, when you see judgment and wrath, remember there's salvation on the other side of that coin. The wrath of God on the wicked is the means by which he brings about the salvation and deliverance of the righteous. You'll establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all our works. 
which is an interesting turn of phrase. You, God, has perform, have performed for us all of our works. O Lord, our God, other masters beside you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. God has done his works that they're wanting to do through them. Now God enables them to confess his name. The dead will not live. The departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you've punished and destroyed them. You've wiped out all remembrance of them. You've increased the nation, O Lord. You've increased the nation. You're glorified. You've extended the borders of the land. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus we were before you, O Lord. See, Israel is in its anguish and its distress and Ultimately, they call out to the Lord, which is exactly what's going to happen. We were pregnant. We arrived in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. And so this is the horror of birth and delivery and labor. See, the joy of, of, the, of the horror of birth, the joy of it is the, there's a baby. But this is all labor, all pain, all agony, all torture, no baby. We gave birth only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth nor were, the, were inhabitants of the world born, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. What for? Well, it's not to speak in tongues. Close your doors behind you because there's a time of indignation. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. See, this is the tribulation. And the remnant of Israel is going to hide and be spirited away and protected by God for a time while, they, um, while the, the indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their sin, their iniquity. This phrase, inhabitants of the earth, is one of the major themes of the little apocalypse. And John picks it up and talks about it a lot in the book of Revelation. The earth dwellers are the targets of God's wrath, and they, it refers to those who are opposed to God. It doesn't mean you. Your destiny is with Christ, and your position in Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenlies. That's who you are. You're not considered in this an earth dweller, and that's an important distinction to make because the question of the tribulation and the timing and all that really comes down to who is God's wrath reserved for. And there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. His discipline is not his wrath. His discipline, his fatherly correction is not his wrath. And this wrath is not fatherly, but it is righteous and it is perfect justice. The earth will, be, will, the earth will reveal her bloodshed and no longer cover her slain is the destiny. So we've read, we've looked, we've seen beautiful, glorious things, and we've seen harsh, fearful things in this co-location of God's wrath and God's blessing. Well, I don't know if you remember the song started with beautiful things. I want to share something with you that just seems to illustrate this and kind of echo these themes in a beautiful way. And I refer to chapter 13 of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. I won't read all of it, but I'll read enough of it that I will preface these remarks by saying this is fair use, uh, a copyright uh, usage for educational and nonprofit purposes. All right, fair use on the last battle, chapter 13. I'll set it up for you. 
The Pevensies are all the kids that are in all the Narnia stories, and they all meet up at the end after the big battle. They all meet up at the end because in the real world, or in our world, in Bristol, they had a train wreck, and they all appear together in Aslan's country. And the reason they're all appearing in Aslan's country is because this frame of life is over, and now they're headed to the eternal state. And so this is the description of what is waiting in, in this allegorical presentation, and it's really beautiful. <clears throat> and so they, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here and there because I just want to set things up because it's, it's really the end of the, of the book. And so we're kind of cheating, but there are a couple of, of images that I really want you to, to get that C.S. Lewis ingeniously wrote. He says they're trying to get their bearings and see where they are. In reality, they stood on grass. The deep blue sky was overhead. The air which blew gently on their faces was that of a day in early summer. Not far away from them rose a grove of trees thickly leaved. But under every leaf there peeped out the gold or faint yellow or purple or glowing red of fruits such as no one had seen in our world. The fruit made Tyrion feel that the king who's just had this big battle. They made Tyrion feel that it must be autumn, but there was something in the feel of the air that told him it could not be later than June. They all moved toward the trees. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he best liked the look of. And then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. And then the high king speaks, Peter Pevensey, the first king of Narnia. It's all right, he said. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure we needn't. I've been feeling, I have a feeling we've got, uh, we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Here goes then, said Eustace Scrub. I think it's Eustace Scrub, Shrub, Eustace Scrub. One of the great trophies of grace in the Chronicles of Narnia. Here goes then, said Eustace, and they all began to eat. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that, compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull. The juiciest orange was dry. The most melting pear was hard and woody. And the sweetest wild strawberry was sour. And there were no seeds or stones and no wasps. And if you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicines after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it's like unless you can get to that country and taste it for yourself. And this is how these believing children that are Aslan's little little pets, the lion has pet humans, it's beautiful. Aslan's little pets, this is how they receive the fruit that's available to them in Aslan's country. But then we have another picture. And I have to share with you the name of this chapter is how the dwarfs avoided getting taken in. And there are these, these uh, foil characters, these dwarfs. I'm trying to find, I'm skipping ahead, and you have to hear this other image of the dwarfs. The dwarfs are a, a, in a kind of a foil opposite to the Pevensey children. After that, said Edmund, when they're trying to figure out how they got here, came about a dozen dwarfs, and then Jill and Eustace, and at last, all, of, all yourself. I hope Tash, this is a monster that just was chasing them. I hope Tash ate the dwarfs too, said Eustace, a little swine. That's Eustace for him. 
And Lucy said, no, he didn't. And don't be horrid. They're still here. In fact, you can see them from here. And I've tried and tried to make friends with the dwarves, but it's no use. Friends with them, cried Eustace. If you knew how those dwarves have been behaving. Oh, stop it, Eustace, said Lucy. Do come and see them, King Tyrion. Perhaps you could do something with them. I can feel no great love for dwarves today, said Tyrion. Yet at your asking, lady, I would do a greater thing than this. Lucy led the way, and soon they could all see the dwarves. They had a very odd look. They weren't strolling about or enjoying themselves, although the cords with which they'd been tied seemed to have vanished. Nor were they lying down and having a rest. They were sitting very close together in a little circle, facing one another. They never looked around or took any notice of the humans till Lucy and Tyrion were almost near enough to touch them. Then the dwarves all cocked their heads as if they couldn't see anyone, but were listening hard and trying to guess at the sound, by the sound what was happening. Look out, said one of them in a surly voice. Mind you, mind where you're going. Don't walk into our faces. All right, said Eustace indignantly. We're not blind. We've got eyes in our heads. They must be darn good eyes if you can see and hear, said the same dwarf whose name was Diggle, of course. (laughs) In where, asked Edmund. Why, you bonehead, in here, of course, said Diggle, in this pitch black, pokey, smelly little hole of a stable. Are you blind, said Tyrion? Ain't we all blind in the dark, said Diggle? But it isn't dark, you poor stupid dwarf, said Lucy. Can't you see? Look up, look round. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? How in the name of all humbug can I see what ain't there? And how can I see you any more than you can see me in this pitch blackness? But I can see you, said Lucy. I'll prove I can see you. You've got a pipe in your mouth. Anyone knows the smell of backy could tell you that, said Diggle. That's tobacco and dwarf, backy. Oh, the poor things. This is dreadful, said Lucy. And then she had an idea. She stooped and picked some wild violets. Listen, dwarf, she said. Even if your eyes are wrong, perhaps your nose is all right. Can you smell that? She leaned across and held the fresh, damp flowers to Diggle's ugly nose. But she had to jump back quickly in order to avoid a blow from his hard little fist. None of that, he shouted. How dare you? How dare you? (laughs) Sorry. What do you mean by shoving a lot of filthy stable litter in my face? There was a thistle in it, too. It's like your sauce. And, what, and who are you, anyway? Earth man, said Tyrion. She is the Queen Lucy, sent hither by Aslan out of the deep pass, and it is for her sake alone that I, Tyrion, your lawful king, do not cut all your heads from your shoulders, proved and twice proved traitors that you are. Well, if that doesn't beat everything, exclaimed Diggle, how can you ever go on? How can you go on talking all that rot? Your wonderful lion didn't come and help you, did he? Thought not. And now, even now, when you've beaten, you've been beaten and shoved into this black hole, just the same as the rest of us, you're still at your old game, starting a new lie, trying to make us believe we're none of us shut up and it ain't dark and heaven knows what. There is no black hole, save in your own fancy, fool, cried Tyrion. Come out of it. And leaning forward, he caught Diggle by the belt and the hood and swung him right out of the circle of dwarfs. But the moment Tyrion put him down, Diggle darted back to his place among the others, rubbing his nose and howling. Ow, ow, why did you do that for? Banging my face against the wall. 
You've nearly broken my nose. Oh, dear, said Lucy. What are we to do for them? Let him alone, said Eustace, of course. But as he spoke, the earth trembled. The sweet air grew suddenly sweeter. A brightness flashed behind them. All turned. Tyrion turned last because he was afraid. And there stood his heart's desire, huge and real, the golden lion. Aslan himself and already the others were kneeling in a circle around his forepaws and bearing their hands and faces in his mane as he stooped his great head to touch them with his tongue. Then he fixed his eyes upon Tyrion, and Tyrion came near trembling and flung himself at the lion's feet. And the lion kissed him and said, Well done, last of the kings of Narnia, who stood firm at the darkest hour. Aslan, said Lucy, through her tears, Could you, will you do something for these poor dwarfs? Dearest, said Aslan, I would show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a low growl, low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, Hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the, of the stable. They're trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Pies and steaks and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay. Another said he got a bit of an old turnip. And a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red, red wine to their lips and said, Oh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this, but very soon every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They've chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Come, children, I have other work to do. That's chapter 13 of The Last Battle. recommend you read the whole thing, but you've got to start The Magician's Nephew, of course. I've always been haunted by the dwarfs eating at the banquet table and thinking that it's hell on earth. And I think that um, the answer to that foolishness, even Lucy, sweet Lucy's calling them idiots, fools and stupid, which aren't nice things to say, but she's excited and, and afraid and can't imagine the horror. In verse 7 of Isaiah 26, the orek, the way, a synonym for a path or a road, the length of path or track in front of you, of the righteous is straight. There are three adjectives that generally are synonyms being used in the Bible for, in the wisdom literature for your path. You want your path to be straight, level, and smooth. Because 
crooked or twisty and uneven and, um, and, and with obstacles, with hurdles in it, is a bad path. That's, that's injury. We need to clear the road after you break your ankle to get the ambulance through to get you to the hospital. You don't want to live, live that kind of life. You don't want that kind of path. It's the straight path, the way of the righteous. And this is the, the, the concept that we're going to develop in terms of the remnant of Israel, in terms of the believers in Jesus Christ, those declared righteous by God's grace. And it's called in the New Testament justification, the way of the righteous. Those walk, working out their salvation in their practice is straight, not crooked, not perverse. And then he uses a synonym for the word straight, and he launches with that and says, smooth is the path of the righteous which you make level. Straight, smooth, and level is what you want your path to be. Three different words in Hebrew to describe the path. And the problem I have with some of the English translation work that I see uh, for this verse is that we have three different words. They have all their, their roles and they're synonymous. You look up one of them and it says straight or smooth. You look up the other one and it says smooth or straight. But they're different words, so you need to show the variety when you bring it into English because it's poetry. Smooth is the path of the righteous, which you make level. Now, I want you to notice something wonderful just happened. We went from a proverbial statement about what the righteous should anticipate on his path to a personal statement about why. Because God is the one blazing the trail, because God is creating the level path. If we look at it in color, in the rhyme, the way of righteous of the righteous is straight. The way is obviously parallel to the path. The righteous, the Sadiq, is the Sadiq. Straight and smooth is what you want the path to be. And so in the middle of this little rhyme, in the center of this little center-seeking structure, is the desirable thing, the smooth and the straight. I want my life to go like it should not like it shouldn't. And this doesn't mean that there aren't hardships. But a hardship without the stability of a walk with God is too hard. And so straight and smooth is what you're after. And it's because of the moral features that God has embedded in his universe that he stabilized. And then outside of that structure, which you make level, the reason, it's cause and effect, the reason that the way of the righteous is straight, that the path of the righteous is smooth, the reason you'll have a good run is because God is in charge of construction. It's fantastic. Do you believe that? Is this something you sink your teeth into? This is our life, and it reinforces something we need to do. Our faith isn't just in God's word. Understand when I say that. Our faith isn't just in God's word. Our faith is in the God who's given us this word and what this word says about him, and it's personal. And so I'm excited when we conclude the verse on a second-person singular verb that is explaining the reason why the previous structure exists. Indeed, in the way of your judgments, Yahweh, you have wait, uh, we have waited. We've hoped in you. Waited or hoped, a, ver- a verb that we've seen before in this context. In the way of your judgments, Lord, we have waited in you. For your name and your memory are the longing of our souls. What you are, who you are, knowing you is what we so desperately desire. This is the banquet. This is the steaks and, uh, and pies and ices and all the things and the, and the rich golden goblet with the aged wine. I'm just speaking from a biblical perspective now. That's what we're after. We want the good things. We want the banquet, right? 
here it is. It's him. And this is the remnant. This is the way you and I should think of our creator. Now, judgments. I get excited about the biblical synonyms for God's word. Judgments, statutes, decrees, laws, commandments, all synonyms for God's word. Torah, that means the law. Well, Torah actually means instruction. Actually means instruction. And we rightly call it the law because God's telling Israel what he wants them to do as a nation, establishing them as a nation, but it's his instruction in righteousness. All of God's word is. In the way of your judgments, we've waited, we've hoped in you. So if we pull this into color, you see, indeed, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited, we have hoped in you. This is, I think, correctly translated as, um, as past, because the speakers are saying uh, this is our performance, and they're basing their praise of God on what he's done with them already. But it could also be translated as we will hope, we will wait in you, okay, in the way of your judgments. So what is the way of God's judgments? What is that? What is the path or the road that's smooth, that's straight, that God establishes or levels? What is the way of God's judgments? It's taking God's word, understanding it, which is his own challenge, understanding it with the eyes of faith that I know you're telling me something and I want to understand it, so I'm trusting you to help bring it to my understanding. And that's where illumination begins. As I, I, I have this faith in God, I want to know him, which isn't quite exactly the same as faith, but it's related. I want to know him, and so I'm trusting him to help me understand even what he's saying. And having understood, then I have another little step with faith. I take it and I trust him with what he's saying. And that's what God's word is for. That's what God's word does, is it establishes and sustains your relationship with God and his relating to you. And this is called condescension. Condescension. It's marvelous. I don't want to talk down to you. I can't. But God does. He's constantly talking down to us. And if he didn't, our heads would explode. He's constantly coming from infinite righteousness, glory, and truth down to us. And he's speaking only truth and only righteousness, and it's all glorious, but it's where we can grasp it. That's condescension. It's the holy condescension of God's word, and it's how we have a relationship. So when he says, in the way of your judgments, Lord, we've waited in you. We will wait in you is the challenge um, of of the tenses in Hebrew in poetry. Is it future? Is it past? For your name and your memory, Zakar, Zechariah, Zakar, for your Shem, your name, and your Zakar, your memory, are the Ava, A V A H would be the Hebrew word for uh, this word that we're translating longing or desire. One, one translation is craving. There are lots of words for these feelings, for these immaterial concepts of how you relate in your immaterial person. But the, the notion here is desiring or craving or hungering for. And this is kind of a play on words because nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, nephesh, is your basic word for uh, living being, nephesh chaim in Genesis uh, 1-7, uh, excuse me, Genesis 2-7, 
God uh, made man from the dust of the ground. He became a living being, breathed breath of life into his nostrils, became a living being, and nefesh chayim. We translate it soul, but then we run into trouble when we're trying to make noose equal nefesh in the New Testament. It doesn't work. But the point is that there's this sense of, the, of, the per, of your, your being, your person. But nefesh could also mean your throat, and it could also mean your appetite. And that's not an accident that the person, body, spirit, unified, the nefesh, is also an appetite. They're related ideas. Because one of the great things is I've told you many times that we have capacity to do is want things. <laughs> and what is your appetite calibrated for? And that's why it's interesting that you have this play on words, the desire, the craving of our throat, of our of our appetite, of our person, of our soul. For your name and your memory are the longing of our souls. This is some intensely personal devotional material. This is stuff that you want to earmark and say, I'm going to spend some time in my prayer time, my devotional time with God on these thoughts. So test yourself. Have you spent any time in the time of your life to this point, looking around in a room with a lot of people with a lot of time in your rearview mirror. How much of your time is spent waiting, trusting, hoping in him and what he said? How much of it is disregarding him and looking forward to things that you may or may not receive that you really, 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 really want, right? Because so much of life, really, in the world we live in, in the time we live in, it's universal, all time, all people, all places, so much of life is just longing for something, longing for someone, whatever the thing is. I want to be in a relationship. I want to have a certain kind of lifestyle. I want to have certain kind of uh, friends. I want something that I may or may not receive. And we get to this interesting thing where it becomes about the conquest, about the getting of whatever the thing is that is the object of our longing. And that is largely, not all, but largely just your sin nature running your life. You'll never be satisfied in the attaining of whatever the thing is that you're longing for until you long for the thing that you're made for, until you want the nutrition, the good food, the the good aged wine that God wants you to have, which is a relationship with himself, there really is nothing that's going to satisfy, as I'm sure all of you know. In the way of your judgments, Lord, we have waited, we have hoped expectantly in you. Peter says that his hope is fixed entirely on Christ, and our blessed hope is Christ coming for us. This is a good moment of repentance for all of us at times. What are you hoping in? What are you expecting? What are you longing for? What's the thing? And please don't do this. I know we all do it from time to time. Please don't. Say, well, except for this one thing that's really I'm looking forward to in this, you know, my moment right now, except for that one thing, I mean, it's about the Lord. Because that little place that you think you're in a neutral space where that's your great desire, that's the thing. And guess what that space, if you've got a really cultivated broken conscience where you're good at having that neutral space, that this is my desire, you will uh, have that space always and there will always be something that occupies it. This is what I'm looking for next. Got it. Now the next thing. I'm looking for this thing. Got it. Now the next thing. And you're subtly, subtly, ever so subtly dodging the banquet. You're missing the blessing. You're one of the dwarfs in your experience, and you don't want to live there. My hope is in the Lord, for your name and your memory are the longing of our souls. 
Now, I don't say this and, and riff on this with you and think this through and chew on this with you because I'm trying to bring about a sense of, of inordinate guilt. This is not a guilt session, okay? This is a challenge that if I don't read it about myself, if this isn't a mirror that I look, looks back at me and says, this is where I live, then I should make an adjustment. If you feel guilty, you're almost uh, to the point of what the scriptures would do with you. If you need to make a change, don't just sit in guilt and wallow and, and be a tortured soul. What a waste. You're doing that to yourself. Guilt, legitimate guilt, is where you recognize that there's something that's off and you need to make a correction. And then you make the correction and you don't live in this guilt. Inordinate guilt is where you say, oh, no, my sin is bigger than God. My sin is, oh, the devil, he's strong. He, he's got a hold on me and I... I just can't. I just, I just have to be one of these losers. You don't. You're blinding yourself. You don't have to live there, but you do have to make a change if you don't want to live there. And we all do. This is a daily uh, recovery. And, and I believe that's why it's such a valuable practice to spend a little time every day in prayer and in the Word. One of the reasons is because it constantly recalibrates us. Because until we are absent from this body and present with the Lord, until our resurrection sometime after that, until we are in a body that inherits eternity and is incorruptible, undefiled, until we receive that inheritance, you have to understand that we're crackpots, we're sinners, we have a sinful nature, and we feel like it. And we feel like it more sometimes than we love God. And that is a constant problem that we're all facing. Paul says it this way, you haven't yet res- resisted to the point of shedding blood. He knows, and we, the scriptures know, that you believers, we believers are struggling with this problem of our sinful nature. And evil thoughts occur to us that should never occur to us. Why do I think these stupid things? Why do I fall into this trap, the satanic trap of thinking that God does not want the highest and best for me? Why do I give any credence to the notion that his prohibition is holding back good things for me that I want for myself, but God's mean and doesn't want me to have them? Why in the world would I say, that I want to chomp on me some broken glass. I just want to eat that glass, and God's mean because he won't let me. Why do we do that? Because we have a sinful nature and we're crazy. That's what our sin nature does. It, it tells us evil is good and good is evil, and we feel like eating broken glass. And God's like, don't eat the glass. And that's, that's the nature of our time. And so for crackpots, as Tom Constable taught me, if you're a crackpot, the only way to stay full is to stay under the tap, right? Otherwise, you're just going to leak out. As my pastor taught me, if you want a momentum in your relationship with God, the rate of learning God's word has to exceed the rate of forgetting. I think that's really valuable. Spend time in the word tonight. It was great. We had time in the word. We got to hear a little bit of the last battle, a little chapter 13 about the dwarfs. And that was cool. And learn about Aslan. And that was an illustration that might stay with you, uh, really stays with me about these dwarves that just can't see the banquet that they're in. You're going to go home. You're going to get in a couple fights with whoever is in your life because that's the nature of your sin nature and theirs. And of course, it's their fault. Um, but you fell for it, and there you are. And, and, and all that. And you're going you're gonna to wake up tomorrow, and maybe this message will still be with you about the rejoicing in God and hoping in Him. But give it a couple more days. There's too much life. There's too much experience. This message won't resonate with you. Even if Charles Spurgeon preached his version of this, it still wouldn't resonate with you unless you reviewed it, unless you went back over, unless you went back to the Bible, unless we're in the Word, because that's the nature of life, because you have other things that are going to happen. People are going to come into your life. People are going to say things that they shouldn't say. You're going to have experiences that you've got to 
fall back on the Lord. You're going to get distracted by this or that good thing or bad thing. And that's how life is. And we've got to go back to the word and then back to life and then back to the word and then back to life and then back to the word. And I think of it like boxing. Thank God. Thank God that life is not one round that lasts 70 or 80 or 100 years. One round that never gets a break. One round that you never go back to your corner and take a, break, a breather and, and, and a little water, not a lot of water, and get, get uh, whatever they need to do to clean you up in the corner. The rounds in boxing are so that you can keep boxing because if it was one round, it'd be about five minutes or whatever is a good round, six or eight minutes if you really got some good wind, and then you're done. You can't, you can't sustain that. So back to the word, back to prayer, back to the fight. Then back to the word and back to prayer. And let's be consistent. And let's take Isaiah 26, 8, the song, the, the, the heart's cry of the ruin of Israel, and say, I want this for myself. I want to be like Isaiah is describing. And let's ask God for that. In verse 9, my soul longs for you in the night. Indeed, my spirit in my inner person it could be in my, in my intestines, uh, but it means that in the inner portion of my inner soul, my inner person seeks you diligently, rhyming with the word soul before. My soul longs for you, nefesh, nafshi, my soul longs for you, that same word, ava, longs for you. For when your judgments fall upon the earth, they learn righteousness, the, the earth dwellers. The thing that we all want is righteousness to reign. To rule. The thing that we all want is for um, unequity, inequitable treatment before law to be just. We want to see the judge rule this way with this person and the same way with the other person, regardless of their economic status or anything. We want to see righteous treatment. We want to see the law be a righteous law and then executed properly by a righteous executive. We, you know, pipe dream things, right? The the tragic project of unbelief in your country is to say, we can't get that out of this system, so we need a new system, and we'll get it there. And then it'll be that way. We'll rearrange the furniture. And, and it doesn't work. That's God and government. The problem is the people. But see, God's judgments, what's another word for judgments? Mishpat, what's another word? This is, this is a synonym for law, statute, enactment, decree. His word. When God speaks... When God's judgments, including what he says, including when he carries it out, when they fall on the earth, when they come upon the earth, the world's inhabitants learn righteousness. God revealing himself means that the earth dwellers find out. Mess around and find out is what is happening in this transitional moment in verse 9. My soul longs for you in the night. Indeed, my spirit and my inner person seeks you diligently. You can see this is a direct parallel. A, my soul, B, my spirit, or A, A prime, my spirit, longs for you, seeks you diligently. Very clear parallelism. But that's the first thing he says, and here's the reason why. Why I want you, why I'm longing for you is this word key for my explanatory clause. Because when your judgments fall upon the earth, the world's inhabitants learn righteousness. Because we're in a, a dire circumstance in a world that is opposed to righteousness. In a world where even God's people in Israel will call evil good and good evil. We want righteousness and truth and reality 
and not divorce them from reality, not disassociative disorders in all our government. We want truth. We don't want people to go to the border and then lie, right? We, we don't want them to stay in Washington and lie. And we want them to lie and lie and then go lie down and then get up and lie some more. We don't, we don't want that. We, we don't want wicked government, just for one example. But you know what? Your children, your parents' household, you don't want wicked government of your parents. What would that look like? What would wicked government? Some people here could tell you what wicked government from parents would be because parents have authority and they also have physical power and those aren't the same thing, but sometimes the authority is abused in the evil and wicked use of physical power. It's a dark place we live in with horrible things. And we want God's judgments to teach the earth dwellers righteousness. And that's where, that's where one of the great um, answers to what is the kingdom, what's it going to look like. The kingdom is not um, a seat of authority uh, for a stand-in for Jesus on earth that has a, a headquarters in every town. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is not the benign presence of Jesus in your heart to make you feel joy, which you should rejoice in your so great salvation, but, and be nice to people. The kingdom is not your kindergarten teacher's best speech on being nice to each other and not running with scissors. The kingdom is going to be um, an exercise in overwhelming firepower against wickedness. God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet is how Paul says it in Romans 16, 20. And when Jesus comes back, he comes on a white horse, not on a donkey to, um, to, to say he comes in peace, but on a charger to make war against the enemies of his people. And that's part of what's being said here when it says your judgments fall upon the earth so that they learn righteousness. Every time God acts, it's in righteousness. When God acts in Wrath, it's righteous wrath. And that's a beautiful thing, and we desperately look forward to that. What is your hope? What are you longing for? Don't be caught in a banquet and say, it is rotten food. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the privilege of knowing you on your terms. Father, for the challenge of your word in Isaiah 26, where it's very personal. It's very beautiful, it's very devotional, and it is the cry of the remnant of Israel looking for the restoration of the kingdom when Jesus comes back to shorten those days so that all of flesh isn't destroyed. Father, we pray for your people, for Israel, the people of uh, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our, our heart uh, is calibrated by the Apostle Paul, and we long for them, for their salvation, for the gospel to be preached to them, for your spirit to work in them, to hear it, to understand it, and indeed for all our loved ones and family and friends around us. We pray for their souls, for you to send a preacher, someone that can explain the, ro- the words of life to them and bear witness for what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Father, we pray for um, the opportunities to say these things to any and all around us. If you'll open the doors, give us wisdom that we walk through them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.